when I got done recording the Thrasymachus scene with Paul Sagar last episode, I asked him, what is your problem with Plato? I was hoping just to get a soundbite for a closing segment, but he went on for nearly 20 minutes. It was super interesting. He told us about the differences between studying at Oxford and Cambridge and why he finds Plato so infuriating and Thrasymachus so sympathetic. I thought you might enjoy it, so I posted it as a bonus episode here on the feed. Here is Dr. Paul Sagar, lecturer in political theory at King's College London. Part of the reason I chose Professor Sagar to play Thrasymachus isn't just because he's a talented political theorist and a friend of mine, it's because I know he actually hates Plato as much as Thrasymachus hates Socrates. So, Professor Sagar, what is your problem with Plato? <laughs> okay, oh, I'm not sure that I hate Plato as much as uh, Thrasymachus hates Socrates. I certainly find the dialogues very hard work, and it's partly the rhetorical style. I really struggle with the, um, the, the dialogue format, in not just on its own, but specifically the way that Socrates' interlocutors often revert to just being yes-men, to just saying, oh, that seems correct, Socrates. Oh, yes, Socrates, that seems entirely reasonable. Usually after Socrates has made some utterly, utterly unconvincing argument, which is absolutely full of holes, and you just want to scream, no, that's a terrible argument. What, what are you letting him get away with that for? So I find the, the rhetorical style very difficult to get along with. Um, however, I, sh I should actually confess that I have friends who, who feel very differently about Plato, who like Plato very much. <laughs> and uh, and they have convinced me that I'm just wrong about this. <laughs> but actually, if you look carefully, I mean, you have to really pay attention to the nuances in the dialogue form. That often uh, what can look on the surface like simple agreement, if you pay attention, and, and particularly people who have the Greek who can read this in the original, they'll tell you that the way some of Socrates' interlocutors reply is actually much more diffident and much more the way that I tried to portray Thrasymachus. Other characters in various dialogues can actually be understood in the same way. And so it's a level of depth which once you get into these dialogues, you start to notice nuances that aren't there on the surface. My problem is that I've never really given them sufficient time to see that for myself. And part of the reason I've never given them time is because I find them infuriating. Um, but I should also qualify that by saying that I, I'm not in any doubt whatsoever that they are absolute works of genius and that they are fantastically important and profound works of philosophy. Um, I, I have a very distinct memory of when I was an undergraduate student, having this quite violent reaction when I was an undergraduate <laughs> student. Um, but then I was revising for my final exams and I was reading The Republic a lot um, because I had to know the book pretty well to sit this exam, which was um, about the history of political philosophy. And I decided to prepare Plato for it. And so I spent a long time reading The Republic. And I do remember having this moment where um, the book opened up on me. I suddenly went from thinking like these are really bad arguments made on a, you know, like in a really annoying rhetorical style to thinking, oh my God, there's so much going on in this book. 
And it was it was kind of like, you know, when you, you, you've been looking at a picture, say one of those Gestalt images, and you just see the old crone with the big nose, and then suddenly your mind switches, and you can see that there's a woman, like a young woman there in the same picture. It was like that, but times a thousand. I suddenly went, had this, it's like someone flipped a switch, and I suddenly realized just how much was going on in the book. And that's also been quite frustrating over the years because I've forgotten the reasons why I thought that. <laughs> now it's, it's all crone. <laughs> yeah, it's gone back to all being crone. So it's kind of frustrating because I, I now I actually know from, from first-hand experience that these dialogues are works of absolute genius. But I find them uniquely hard to access compared to more conventional writings of philosophy. And also there's a sort of self-hatred, a sort of frustration here that that there was a point in my life when i'd sort of cracked the code and suddenly i was in but i didn't stick with it and now i'm not in anymore and and so i've kind of this is about me as much as it's about (laughs) so staggering (laughs) staggeringly annoying works of genius yeah i mean that's kind of what i think they are i find them staggeringly annoying works of genius um i also guess that i struggle because i'm I'm so unplatonic in my own political prejudices i mean if if you're going to give me an ancient greek then give me aristotle every day i I don't agree with aristotle but i i find the way he approaches these questions far more congenial to getting the right kinds of answers and i think aristotle felt like that too you know Uh, you think uh, aristotle thought he was right I think Aristotle thought like Plato, Plato's just getting this all wrong. And the way he wants to answer these questions is just not the way to do it. And I'm with Aristotle on this. I think you start from, from experience. You start from the ordinary man. You ask ordinary people how they feel. You don't sit there asking them questions designed to show that they know even less than you whilst trying to create a republic of philosopher kings where the elite rule and they get to tell everybody what to do. I think you know, that's just crazy as an outcome, but also portrays a certain attitude to what philosophy is and what it can do that Plato holds, which I'm not sympathetic to. As I think someone like Aristotle comes along in the next generation, literally the next generation, and puts forward a kind of way of thinking about how to do good philosophy that I'm personally more in touch with. So that's partly that as well. But finally, it's also that I just think I have so much sympathy for Prosimachus. I just think that, I think he has actually, I mean, I don't think he's right. I think the arguments that are put in his mouth in the Republic are not convincing. But I think Socrates' answers are not convincing in the slightest. I think Prosimachus effectively exits the dialogue in book, you know, it's book one, isn't it? It's still, it's still book one. Yeah. And we don't really hear from him again. And, and I've always thought that was quite revealing. <laughs> Plato didn't really know how to answer this guy. So he just shut him up. Well, I, I, I don't, I don't think so it's that. I think, uh, I mean, the problem is you can't talk to Thrasymachus because he wants to debate, but his exact questions are the ones that Glaucon and Adamantus take up in book two. So right. according to a lot of readings, it's that the entire Republic is an effort to answer Thrasymachus. And sometimes the thing that I think gets, Plato gets kind of, it's a wrong way to approach moral philosophy is to have to think that you have to answer the psychopath. Right. right? If someone's yeah. like, hey, morality doesn't exist. We, we believe in nothing, Lebowski. Then I feel like <laughs> yeah, you're not even getting the conversation off the ground. You need, you need someone who at least grants the premise that there is some kind of good. Exactly. And I guess that that is precisely what frustrates me is that rather than accepting that you can't answer Prosimachus on his on or maybe not on his grounds, but you can't force him onto Plato's grounds. Right. You can't. There's no philosophical argument that's going to address this guy. This guy just is not going to listen. So then it becomes a political question about what you do about people like this. We try and keep them out of power for a start. 
but for me, what the did he entire... teach at law school? <laughs> I mean, that's <laughs> well, well, <laughs> he's, he's, he's a sophist, right? He teaches public speaking. Yeah, um, I think he's more than a sophist. Actually, I think he's he's in some ways more more concerning than a sophist in, in the political realm. If, I mean, he's a he's a Trumpian, right? You know, it doesn't matter about the rule of law or the constitution. Like, tr- you know, Trump is a is a Frisimachian, if you want to put it that way, leader, right? He does what's good for Trump and his family and fuck everybody else, right? And that's really dangerous in politics. But I don't think the correct response to somebody like that is, well, we're going to construct an elaborate philosophical system to prove that you're wrong because your soul is going to be worse off. I mean, yeah, I don't think Donald Trump's soul is particularly well ordered i also don't think that's the main concern right? <laughs> i don't think that's what we should be worrying about right now um so, so i guess my frustration is that i think thrasymachus has better arguments than plato credits with him for and you're right that glaucon in particular takes those up later on and i don't think they're particularly well answered but i also think that this view of philosophy as being the answer to that kind of threat it's not only a bad answer I think that it put a lot of the subsequent philosophical tradition, because Plato's so important for the formation of subsequent Western political and moral thought. I think it really put people off in the wrong direction for millennia afterwards. So I find it frustrating. But again, that's not to say in any way, shape or form that I don't think Plato was a genius and that I don't think he deserves his position in the canon. He really does. It just happens that I think, unfortunately, the first really major thinker that's come down to us historically i think got off on completely the wrong foot and it's taken millennia and we're still arguably not there to kind of correct for that well this and is hopefully one of... day we keep this podcast going get to nietzsche yeah. and this is what nietzsche says right it all went wrong with plato <laughs> i can't agree with that yeah you know i feel i have the same feeling about reading plato that you know, it's in all of the secondary literature, you, all the ones that are like analytic philosophers going through argument by argument. And like Julia Annis, she has a great book on the Republic. And she basically goes through all the arguments and shows why they don't hold that much water. And you read it and Socrates is annoying and a lot of his arguments are specious. But in the end, the book gets in your head and it changes the way I think about the world. So it's doing something. I don't think it's necessarily uh, doing great political science, but it definitely opens my eyes to different ways of seeing the world, politics, morality, epistemology, whatever, almost anything. Uh, uh, There's no doubt about that. Again, it's one of of those unique books. There's not many authors in the history of philosophy who can pull this off. One, another one is Hobbes. He's a very different thinker in some ways to Plato. Authors who can step by step make arguments they think that's implausible that's not true or i don't think that's the case and nonetheless when you step back and put all their arguments together you get an overall coherent picture which makes you think maybe huh maybe they maybe that's true and it's a really unique well not entirely unique but very very rare very very few people can do that and plato is one of them that can and and the Republican in particular can do that, even if every single page you just think this is wrong, this isn't convincing, these are bad <laughs> arguments. It, it, it that doesn't weirdly that doesn't matter, and th- and that's partly what makes it such a great book, because very very few human beings in the history of of human beings have been able to pull that off. Well, you so know, strong arguments require strong premises, and strong premises are premises that people already believe. And if you're starting from what we already believe, we're not going to be very impressed with you philosophically. So you have to start with unbelievable premises and then it takes a true talent to make them plausible. 
yeah yeah that, 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 that could be that could be the, the right the right way to put it um although again i'd, I'd, I'd appeal to aristotle here and say he, he starts with some more plausible premises and you know it gets you to some pretty impressive plausible answers too so so i'm, I'm not sure it's quite that, that the, that's the case otherwise there'd only be Plato and Hobbes worth reading and there's some universities <laughs> they'll tell you that's the case but that's also probably not the case yeah because if you're at Cambridge you have to also read Schmidt right uh, <laughs> I don't know do you um, maybe yeah you don't read any of these people at Oxford where yeah. I did my undergraduate degree so oh, that's not is, quite true you, you can you can choose to but they're not compulsory who are you reading as a as an undergrad in uh, PPE? I guess philosophy, politics, and economics. Yeah. What do you so read at Oxford? Who are the lodestars of um, Oxford political philosophy? So I mean, I'm not sure what it's like today. It could well have changed, but I'm not sure it has actually. But the first year course was you did John Stuart Mill on liberty, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Rousseau on the social contract, a week on democracy, a week on liberty. That was your kind of core, or at least at my college, that was the core political theory intro. And that was, you know, that was your orientation. And then when, uh, when I progressed to second year and started doing more advanced political theory, you know, it was rules on justice and dwarking on equality. And then it was just hardcore analytic. And if you were a bit weird, like me, you were allowed to go off and do optional modules where you might read Plato and Hobbes. But that was kind of, you know, nerdy side stuff for people who wanted to do weird stuff. It wasn't considered to be the canon, so to speak. Whereas if you were does anyone like, follow the trail of crumbs into the forest to like Michael Frieden's uh, tutorials or? Oh, oh, I had a, I, I had a, I, I was off on the trail. That, yeah, his book on ideologies. Yeah, I definitely read that. Yeah, yeah I, I, my my memories from Oxford are very much uh, Rawls oriented. Yeah, I think that's the case. But you know, at Cambridge, it was all Hobbes, 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 Hobbes. Right, right? Exactly. And and so you know, the different approaches. At the end of the day, these courses are all weighs into a vast vast number of texts thinkers ideas and they're all products of certain histories and certain environments and the important thing for anybody doing any degree at any university is just to remember that undergraduate courses are just to learn about an area of thought that even if you had 10 lifetimes you could never master and know completely so you've got to start somewhere and you can start there and then the important thing is to reflect later about whether you may want to rethink some of the things you picked up or whether you might have thought about it differently if you started somewhere else. And as long as we all do that, I don't think there's any harm in yeah, going Yeah, J.S. Mill or Thomas Hobbes, they'll still hire you at J.P. Morgan. <laughs> well, that, well, and that's the truth, right? That, that these elite courses, and it'll be the same at Harvard and Yale, you know, ultimately, they're not really designed to give you an introduction to the history of Western thought. They're really designed to produce civil servants and bankers and, and keep employing the upper middle class uh, to prop up the plutocracy that we currently, you know, find ourselves in the potentially the last days of. So, yeah, again, <laughs> that's important to remember as well. Plato, you know, your podcast about Plato at the moment, Plato would look at what's going on in these universities and say most of it is sophistry. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's hard to disagree with him. I, uh, universities, I don't know. I think they might just be disconnected enough that... Uh, see, when I, when I teach the difference between uh, what philosophers are doing between, say, a Socrates and a Thrasymachus, like a philosopher and a sophist, I, I frame it in terms of the difference of, like, professional school. Like, law school would be equivalent to sophistry. It's public speaking. You learn how to win in in court and in life 
um, to make speeches. That's why, you know, so many of our politicians are lawyers, but it doesn't really aim at, well, what should you be doing? Whereas philosophy, it tries to engage those more abstract and normative questions, but it definitely, uh, in my personal experience, does not teach you how to win in life. Yeah, I guess I suppose my perspective here is skewed by being based in the UK, where to such an extent our university culture has been permeated by an emphasis on employability, transferable skills. The government basically thinks we exist purely to produce the next generation of yeah. knowledge economy worker bees. And so we, we, we find that we, we are attempting to provide the, the platonic ideal of philosophy rather than sophistry, kind of in the face of the institutional pressures we're, we're forced to work under. And, and we're often on the lookout for those bright students who want that. Um, but it means that we have an awful lot of people who really, they are there for the equivalent of law school. Um, and again, maybe that's just inevitable in the kind of societies we live in now. And hey, I shouldn't complain. I'm given a little space in which I can do my research and do podcasts like this and find those students who don't want sophistry. They want philosophy and we can talk. And so, there are, so it's nice, you know, we, we find these little spaces, but the institutions as a whole, um, you know, they have to exist in the reality of the modern world. And of course, the reality of the modern world is not something Plato would have been happy endorsing either. So, okay, last question about Plato and uh, your overall evaluation of him. We have 10 to 20 episodes coming up on the Republic. You could save our listeners a lot of time if they're really not worth listening to. So, should they bother? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely, they should. They're really like, look, the fact that I personally find Plato difficult to read and doesn't float my boat in terms of how to do philosophy, that's just my view. But I've come to that view over a good 15 years now. I've had to really think about it. So one, there's a simple point here of, well, you better know your enemy. Right? If I'm going to say that this is the wrong way to do philosophy, I've got to know what I'm talking about. Right? Otherwise, I'm a sophist. If I'm just, right, you know, I'm the kind of like the Thrasymachus. If I just think, oh, I don't like that, therefore don't bother knowing it. That's not a good answer. No, you've got to know this stuff. And secondly, I could well be wrong. Right? There's plenty of people out there who have a much higher opinion of what's going on um, in terms of the quality of the argument and its historical importance and its orientation to doing philosophy correctly um you know who who would would say you'd be missing out on a huge amount of intellectual insight if you didn't follow this so yeah no absolutely people should should stay tuned and uh and um and carry on listening and like i say i really hope that after plato you make it onto aristotle because i think that guy you know he if you want for me the ancients who i really go back to again and again it's Aristotle's politics that I, I just find endlessly fascinating. Excellent. All right. Thank you. We'll try to, we'll try to get to that. Good stuff. Thanks. Anyway, Chris. thank you. Thank you, Paul Sagar, for coming on Good in Theory. And we hope well, to have you back one day. Yeah, I hope, I hope to be invited back.